this is Jonah Thompson, and welcome back to Integrated, the Community Paramedicine Podcast. And with us today, I have uh, Amy Jarosek from a community paramedicine program that's actually been around for a bunch of years and has been really successful in figuring out how to connect people and resources in a way that they've been able to sustain. So I asked her to come on today and kind of describe their program and you know, really just talk about where, they, where they're at and what they're doing. So Amy, thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So let's start with where are you at? Tell us a little bit about your program. How did it get started? When did it get started? Yeah, so we we are a program that is about six years old now. Williamson County EMS became involved in the 1115 grant waiver through the federal government, part of DISRIP. And we put together a small startup program to address the needs of 911 high utilizers as well as some hospital readmission reduction needs. And our program functioned under that grant until 2017, until the end of 2017. And we came out from under the grant at that point, and our county government saw the value in continuing our program in regards to 911 use reduction, high utilizer interventions, and kept our program on uh, since then. And we have done some really interesting work we are still learning like every other community paramedic program around the nation is and currently are working on some COVID response as I think everybody is right now. Sure. So, I mean, that's actually pretty impressive that you were able to demonstrate enough value to a county government or to a government entity that they actually wanted to continue the program. So are you tax-based supported or are there other revenue sources that are involved? So currently we are supported through the tax base. Uh, The commissioner's court uh, funds us and we are searching for additional funding sources, entering into a grant project here in the next few weeks with our local health district. Um, Interestingly enough, to address some some COVID response, what we discovered was that the COVID response was very much in the realm of community paramedicine. And we are a small team still. There are only three of us. I am the program lead, and then we have two additional providers. And each of us has nearly 20 years of experience apiece. So um, seasoned providers going out and, and helping navigate 911 high utilizers to more appropriate resources, as well as now navigating our long-term care facilities to appropriate interventions for infection control and COVID testing. So definitely leveraging a lot of maturity, which is an interesting conversation. I know there's some very successful programs out there that are recruiting people from a wide range of backgrounds, including some very new medics, as well as some seasoned medics, and taking advantage of, A, I think the enthusiasm, Uh, People coming into this who aren't feeling quite as uh, burnt out or jaded as unfortunately occurs all too often in in EMS. Um, Getting some of the, some of that, that new blood, that those fresh ideas, that new medic enthusiasm is, is wonderful. And I think a lot of the new or medics who have come out of school in the last few years are also not unfamiliar with the concepts that we're talking about here as far as social determinants and 
really targeting a lot of the drivers of utilization. You know, they're, they're talking about it in paramedic school now, the, the kind of things that 15, 20, 25 years ago, um, that really wasn't a focus that any of us really heard. You know, we were, we were responding to the emergency and addressing what was in front of us. And now I think we're doing a better job of telling people, hey, there's more to this than just reacting. But there's right. something for maturity as well. And, and that depth of experience and that confidence that comes from being able to pause. Right. And I think that there are advantages to both a seasoned paramedic as a community paramedic and a new paramedic. I think that the enthusiasm that a new paramedic has is certainly an advantage and that desire to get to the root cause of a much bigger issue is something that a newer paramedic may possess more than, as you said, a paramedic who may be getting burned out and just wants to go pick up a patient, take them to the hospital, and then it's someone else's problem. So there's definitely advantages to both of those things. And we have experienced having newer paramedics as community paramedics and having seasoned paramedics. We currently, as I said, have very seasoned paramedics. However, the idea that we share as a program is that it is not necessarily our focus to solve the issue at hand. It is to address the underlying issue and figure out how we can navigate that person to more appropriate resources, people who specialize in what they need, whether that be finding a primary care provider, getting help with insurance navigation, you know, a number of social needs that we address, transportation, you know, oftentimes people are calling the ambulance because they don't have transportation. So putting together this Rolodex, if you will, of resources and being able to hand those cards out is in my opinion, the most efficient way to be a community paramedic is to find the issue, and navigate those people to other resources. And that way you're moving people through your program most efficiently, and they are getting the information that is going to solve their problem best. I completely agree with you. You know, we've, we've experimented with a lot of different things, but I think the longer we've been at it, the more we've realized that clinical interventions, yes, Paramedics can probably safely and appropriately do a lot of things, but it, the more important question is why aren't the those necessary interventions being performed by the folks that are supposed to be doing them? Right. I so, think. Like, what's you know, the we, Why is there a barrier to people getting the care they need? Right, and I think that you know it's multifaceted uh, the barriers and the things that we have encountered as a program. We jokingly oftentimes say that we do a lot of social work. And that is indeed what we do is social work. Unfortunately, every patient who walks through the doors of the emergency room that has a need to be addressed doesn't get to see a social worker or a case manager. And the emergency room is not the appropriate place for all of those things. So being mobile and going to these people before they call 911 
and addressing their needs and doing case management and social work and navigating them to other resources. That's, that's the heart of community paramedicine. And that's how you're going to be most efficient and make the most change. I absolutely agree with you. So, I mean, that kind of brings up two questions for me. Um, the first is, so are you a pure uh, community paramedic program or are you a broader mobile integrated health program with some other types of professionals that are within your internal organization, not your external partners, but you know, do you have pharmacists and community health workers and navigators or anyone else that actually works for your agency and for your program directly? So we are all three community paramedics. Two of us also hold the state of Texas community health worker certification. And while our small department within EMS does not employ social workers or pharmacists per se, we have also a connection to what's called our mobile outreach team. And those providers focus on mental health. And so they have social workers on their department and their department. And so we work very closely with that team to address multiple issues because oftentimes we're encountering these patients who are calling 911 frequently. And unfortunately, there's a mental health component along with a chronic disease component. So if we can work the mental health side as well as the chronic disease side, then both of those issues are gonna be better taken care of. So we have access to multiple providers. We have a medical director who is very forward thinking in community paramedicine, Dr. Jeff Jarvis, who also is employed by one of our local hospitals. And he is always accessible to us. Um, there have been times that we have gone out and seen a COPD patient and recognized what was probably the beginnings of pneumonia, called to try to make an appointment, which you know is oftentimes very difficult, especially when there are transportation issues and insurance issues, called to try to make an appointment for that patient at a clinic, couldn't get one in a in a time frame that was going to best serve the patient and contacted him, given him an assessment, a very thorough assessment, and been able to obtain an antibiotic prescription for that patient until they could get into a clinic and get a chest x-ray and some further treatment. So we really do have a good working relationship with other providers, but just our department of EMS, we are all three paramedics and two of us are community health workers. And it sounds like you've addressed the need in, a, in an effective way, simply by finding the right partnerships and you know, building the relationships. You know, that's a huge tool. And you know, we're, where I work now, we're pretty privileged in that we are, a, because we're a large health system, we've got uh, access to a lot of other people within our organization. We've got a pharmacist on the team. We've got a psychologist on our team who happens to also be a paramedic. Um, you know, we're able to bring, we've got our own data analysts, you know, we've got the physician involvement. And I can't imagine running an effective mobile integrated health program without all of those resources. But for a lot of services, smaller programs, um, more rural programs, perhaps that don't have that density of health resources, 
there's no way they're going to be able to hire them. So the key is build the relationships, figure out who they are. Exactly. It's, you know, we have worked very hard to establish working relationships with our local hospitals. Being a third service, a government-run EMS system, we don't have an affiliation with a hospital system. And in our county, there are three different hospital systems. And so that makes establishing a relationship with all three of them very difficult. That's been one of the challenges. Um, I know that a lot of community paramedic programs like yours are able to work through their hospital system and we don't have that advantage. But we do have, in addition to our medical director, we have the Williamson County and Cities Health District, our local health authority. And we have a unique relationship with them as well where they employ service navigators. So those navigators at our request can actually come out to a patient's home with us and navigate them to Medicaid services or uh, indigent care services in their home. And so we have really, we've worked very hard and I'm very proud of the relationships that we've established with a lot of the different uh, services around our county, especially in lieu of having some of the disadvantages. It absolutely sounds like it. And that's such a key point that the more programs I talk to, the more people I talk to who've been at this for a little while, they've gotten past that startup phase and they've really figured out how to uh, evolve into a more mature and robust program the ones that do are the ones that have built those relationships that have put the effort into figuring out who it is they need to be partnered with. So kind of the, the follow on question to that is, you, know, you mentioned um, data and information sharing and how that can be more difficult as a third service compared to being embedded in one say healthcare system or another. How are you able to, or are you able to share all of that, that health information with the various stakeholders? You know, is there a health information exchange set up or do you have, um, you know, consent and records exchange or, you know, how are you documenting? How's that working out? So we, that's something that we have struggled with um, just because there are multiple hospital systems in our county. We don't have the access um, to the providers that it would really be helpful to have access to. So we've had to go about it the hard way. And oftentimes that just means contacting that patient's provider directly and advising them what we're doing. So every time we enroll someone, we obtain consent to speak with their other medical providers in regards to their treatment. And so we're able to navigate them through the health district and we are able to speak with their providers and contact their pharmacy for them via that consent. Unfortunately, like I said, because we have three different hospital systems, those hospital systems don't speak to each other well. And so they don't speak with us either. However, also the advantage of having three seasoned providers is that we had established relationships with those hospitals before we were ever community paramedics. So when I walk into a hospital, if I've got a patient in the ER, 
and I walk into that hospital, I know those nurses and I know those doctors and those ERs and we work very hard to keep those relationships up. No, it, phone, fax, snail mail, and occasionally secure email when the BAAs are in place is the kind of the rule of the day for a lot of programs. You know, I, I heard about, talked to a friend of mine who's now working up in Eagle County in Colorado, and they were able to establish a, a health information exchange with the local hospital system and a lot of the primary care practices. And that went a long way towards facilitating things. You know, we're we're within our own large health system. So, you know, we're charting within the same EHR and we've got access to that, but not the other hospitals that are not part of our system in the area. And we've got that struggle. Um, but a lot of programs are doing exactly what you're doing. And that's where most of us, I think, have tried to continue our, you know, building those relationships. Right. I think, you know, in historically, all of the medical field has operated in a, in a silo, right? So there's this ownership for a patient. So, you know, the primary care physician is maybe not talking to the endocrinologist because they don't work for the same clinic or work for the same hospital. And they've got this EMS provider over here wanting to share information or obtain information from them that could ultimately benefit the patient and benefit the provider in the end. And there's still this ownership of a patient and there's a silo operation across the board with, with healthcare. And it's probably one of the most frustrating things that I have discovered and seen uh, being involved in community care medicine. You know, I was a, a paramedic for many years before I went into community paramedicine and I had to learn that you know it's not as easy as just walking into the ER and giving a report and walking out and trusting that somebody was going to take care of this because this is linear you know we're taking care of this patient over time so there's multiple issues to be addressed and you've got to prioritize those and Oftentimes, one of those issues is teaching that patient to advocate for themselves and teaching them how to talk to their doctor and their provider. And, you know, maybe that's carrying a notebook with them to each provider, which we oftentimes provide to our patients so that they can carry that between providers. And it's a it's a easier way for the providers to talk to each other and see what's going on or whether it's teaching someone how to make a list you know, you get three things to talk to when you walk into your provider's office today. Three things. What are your top three things right now? And teaching them how to make that list and then ask those questions of the doctor because everyone's in a hurry nowadays. But the people that are not in a hurry are community paramedics because we're taking care of these people over a period of time. And, you know, our goal is always to enroll for, for 30 days that's kind of been our gold standard since the beginning of our program. But I'll tell you, sometimes, sometimes people are enrolled for six months and what they get varies across that six months, but sometimes the enrollment is longer and it's just figuring out what's the right time to let go um, and trust that you have taught that person to advocate for themselves, to take their medications correctly to 
know when it's appropriate to call 911. You know, all of those things that were that are our goals, our overarching goals when we're doing this patient interaction. For sure. You know, we, uh, we've always targeted 90 days as our kind of norm or our standard and came to that conclusion or we decided that that was the right period of time, mostly because we started looking at the amount of time it takes to work through a lot of the different programs as we started to help people connect and get resourced. Um, you know, for say medical assist, it's going to take us a couple of weeks to help them gather all the information they need so that they can provide it to somebody who can help them fill out the application, you know, all that background stuff, their financial data and letters from their landlord if they don't have a lease and what have you. So it takes a few weeks to do that. Um, you know, MA has 30 days to respond to an application. So, you know, they mail it in, we've worked with them for two weeks, got everything together, 30 days later, they get a response back that their MA application has been denied for insufficient information or they're missing something or, um, so then we have to go through the appeal process and they've got another 30 days to respond to that. So we found that like 90 days was a good window of time to aim for, but something right. can be resourced, we can help them address their barriers in just you know a month or so, you know, three or four weeks. And then sometimes you're right. We've got folks that are, we're carrying on our panel and one of the medics has them for, you know, it could be six, eight months or, or even longer. And our goal is not to be long-term case management. That's not our job. And if someone needs that, that's one of our goals is to help them connect to a long-term uh, case management type of service based on what's available. But yeah, it, you never really know. Right. And I think, you know, the interesting thing is that, you know, as a community paramedic, you build a trust with these people. So you have a relationship with them. And while you may be confident in the fact that they are ready to manage their needs on their own, or that they know what phone number to call when they need to renew their indigent care insurance, they are not quite there. So gauging what they need in regards to support Oftentimes, when I have a patient who seems very dependent and attached to what we're doing, you know, there's kind of two roads to take. One is to hang on for a little bit longer and just change the communication pattern. So instead of coming to see you once a week, I'm going to call you twice a week and see how you're doing. So you can take that road and it works with a lot of patients, but with some patients, you have to say to them, you are ready. I'm going to stop calling you. You know how to contact me and you know what to do. And you just kind of have to cut the cord there and see where it goes. And then of course, you know, biting your nails, watching the 911 reports to make sure that, that they haven't started calling 911 again. And yep. so it, it's, there's really a lot of balancing um, as a community paramedic. Absolutely. You know, we've had to build a lot of rules into our system in order to kind of protect both patients as well as our medics from that, that cling on patient that builds a, uh, an almost an unhealthy attachment or dependence on us. Like our goal has always been resilience. How do we help patients become more resilient, more self-sustaining, uh, address those barriers to self-management of health so that they can get themselves to be where they need to be. Right. It's, it's definitely a balancing act. And, and sometimes 
these patients will, will kind of start to suck you in, I guess, um, into, you know, their needs. And so it's definitely, um, it's definitely interesting to try to figure out what the best thing to do is, but you know, it all, does also all go back to efficiency. You know, are you really being efficient and are you really saving money for your system if you are having to go out and see this patient twice a week as opposed to them calling 911 once a week, right? So you have to weigh which one is more efficient. And we definitely have those patients who, while they, it may seem that they had an unsuccessful enrollment, they really didn't have an unsuccessful enrollment in the program. You've really done everything that you could do and, and empowered them with what they needed to take care of themselves, but they continue to call 911. And sometimes that's because they have a chronic disease that is going to cause them to be sick. You know, we're not, we're not seeing people who call once a week because they've got an anger on toenail, right? We're seeing people who have COPD and CHF and diabetes. So they are going to be sick. And that's something that we as a program have also addressed with our 911 providers because we have providers who are very quick to contact us after we've enrolled a patient in the program and we've successfully discharged them the very first time they call, we have a 911 provider contacting us saying, hey, they called again. Well, they did, but let's look at what's going on and let's see if this was a good use of 911. And oftentimes it is, you know, it's, it's a big nasty flare up of their COPD or their CHF or their blood sugar was 800. So addressing that also and remembering that our paramedics in the field are our customers as well. And that flare-up is not because their medical condition is somehow different or worse than someone else who's got the same diagnosis. You know, it's all those psychosocial and environmental factors that are just making it harder for them to manage their health effectively. Right. And I, I think you talked earlier about, you know, the mission you know, of our program, we were chatting earlier. And, you know, I've always said that our mission is to ease some of the burden on our 911 providers. And that will always be our mission. We have other missions as well. You know, the, the patient is our customer, but those 911 providers are our customers. The Hospital ER providers are our customers. The ICU nurses are our customers. The primary care providers are our customers. So it goes back to something that I feel very strongly about, and that's customer service and providing that customer service to everyone that we contact is always going to be our primary mission. But we've definitely had to adjust some of the ways that we think about what we're doing and deciding what is the best use of our providers financially and, and time-wise. And so that's been quite a learning curve for us as well. No, that's, that's certainly a challenge is really just figuring out even what to measure and how to measure it. And then once you've measured all these things, how do we report it? How do we report it in a way you do language that the payer side stakeholders care about and that that's a whole nother conversation we can have 
But I would right. like to talk a little bit, like how do you train your CPs? What education do they get? What training do they get? Are there opportunities for um, clinical mentorship and you know that onboarding process? You know, can, you, can you tell us how you get someone, take them from the street who's expressed an interest, you've decided they're the right person, how do you get them ready to go do this job? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's, it's interesting. There are all of these clinical metrics that, um, you know, EMS looks at and that community paramedic programs look at. And we certainly have been provided with some additional education in regards to cardiology and pulmonology. We have some really um, great providers here in, in Williamson County who have provided us with some additional education. And, you know, I have found that as far as our providers go, that's probably where we really lacked in the beginning and the startup of our program was additional education. And I haven't truly been able to pinpoint why that education was necessarily lacking. It's something that I feel like we had to catch up with and it's constantly changing. So taking a provider from the field, I think the biggest, the biggest lesson that they have to learn is that community paramedics are not treating the emergency. You know, we are not seeing these people based on an emergency. So learning to see a patient who to a 911 provider may appear to be in extremis and need to go to the hospital, seeing that patient and working through a NEB treatment and a call to their provider, maybe a call to our medical director, those are probably the most difficult things to teach a community paramedic. And it's, it's been the, the toughest lesson for our new providers that we have had as community paramedics. So I also mentioned earlier that we, two of our providers are community health workers for the state of Texas. And that has been interesting as well. Um, in Texas, community health workers, the main focus is on minority populations. And I didn't really realize when I took that class how important it would be to address the social determinants of health and some of the issues that come up with our minority populations. So really pinning down what is important as far as education for a community paramedic it is always, I think, difficult because it involves so many different things. And probably every day I'm learning something new that we need to know in order to address this. For instance, you know, no one knew that we were going to be in a pandemic and that I was going to need to know how a nasopharyngeal swab was performed and, you know, how to deliver a test to the state lab and how to address infection control measures all of those things that we are addressing now as a program, you know, is it's, it changes constantly. I hear you. And 
establishing that baseline has been a huge question, I think, for programs around the country. You know, what what is the minimum core education that everyone functioning as a community paramedic, regardless of your local mission, what is that that we all need? And right. it's a huge work in progress. So just to plug everything that's going on around the country and, and efforts that are out there for every program, we're all really trying to solve that problem. Get involved, get involved with the IAFCCP, get involved with the NAEMT, get involved with all of the different national organizations that are out there that are trying to have this conversation about what does community paramedic education and clinical mentoring uh, look like? Because I don't know that there's any one body out there that's got this down yet, but I do know that in order to advance as a subspecialty, as a profession, we need to have that conversation. We need to talk about the gaps that we're observing in ourselves and in our team members and in our folks that work for us on our teams and our staff and say, you know, as a paramedic, my education in pharmacology for say chronic disease management was insufficient. And I've had to learn so much in the course of my job every single day in order to effectively advocate for my patients. This is something that we need to bake into whatever CP training or CP education looks like you know, or talking about social determinants or adverse childhood experiences or motivational interviewing or, um, you know, the the public health aspects of it, you know, the epidemiology from the practical skills in terms of say like the obtaining lab samples and how to handle and process those uh, to the bigger picture, more conceptual ones. You know, how do we start understanding population health level factors and impediments? Like, what are those things? We're all going through this. We need to start talking about it and contributing that information to uh, the national conversation. Right. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. And I, that's, like I said, been one of the biggest struggles I think that we have had is that we didn't necessarily receive that additional training in a formal way, you know, um, we had some case management textbooks in our office and, you know, access to some pharmacology books. But I had an interesting um, community paramedic visit with a 911 provider um, who was on light duty and came up to work in our office for a little while. And she went on a, a visit with me and it was a pretty standard visit with a CHF patient. We sat down and we were going to look at her medications and talk about her, you know, her daily weights and, you know, what to look for. And so we sat down at the kitchen table with this lady and went through her medications and I provided her with uh, some handbooks that, that we gave um, our patients based on their chronic disease and I started looking through her medications and telling her, you know, this is for your blood pressure. This is a fluid pill. and This is how you should take this and, you know, things like that. And when we finished the visit, it was very standard for me. We finished the visit, we got in the car and the other provider, the 911 provider said, how did you know all of that? And I said, well, we didn't really have a formal class on that. I spent some time sitting in patients' kitchens, looking up medications on my phone 
so that I could tell that patient what that medication was and how that medication was supposed to work. And, and I spent some time researching on my own why you should use your albuterol nebulizer before you take your Advair and to get the most efficient use of the medication that you are taking. And I definitely think that that is a place where there is a lack. And I think part of it is due in part, at least in Texas, to the fact that community paramedic is not a recognized certification. So I think working that direction is, is really important. No, I agree. We, we put a lot of work from the early days of this program into, say, the, um, the pharmacology and pharmacy piece of this, and really a, a appreciating where our limits are, but where our strengths were as well. You know, we are the experts at walking into that uncontrolled environment, into that patient's home or under a bridge or wherever they happen to be, and identifying all of those little itty bitty details that are necessary and important, but what to do with them is always the bigger question. So, you know, we put a lot of work into figuring out, well, how do we do an effective medication inventory that really captures all of the relevant data? And then who do we need to build a relationship with? Who do we need to build a partnership with in order to take that next step? Because we can't reconcile. You know, right. we, can our, we can use our physician medical directors uh, to do so if necessary, but honestly, there's a difference between a physician and a pharmacist. You know, that doctor of pharmacy has very specific subject matter expertise and is able to look at that very narrow specific problem in ways that, you know, even the docs are not always comfortable doing, especially emergency medicine physician. You know, they're, that's not their expertise. That's not their strength. So the key was to build those partnerships so we can all kind of build off of each other's expertise and strengths and and get somewhere. And it's been really, really powerful. And I've seen a couple of great articles come out recently from some pharmacists that are now embedded in and working with MIH programs. And they've really reflected the same type of, of value and benefits that we've had. And, but it took partnerships. None of us can do it by right. ourselves. You know, the pharmacists are not comfortable uh, and often not able, and it would really be an, a poor use of their time to send them around on home visits to do med inventories. On the other hand, if we do a good med inventory, we can provide that data to them. Um, it is worth their time to sit down and do the reconciliations. So, but learning how to do that and learning what we all need from each other and what the expectations should be from each piece of that encounter is something that we, we had to build and now we have to teach people how to do. Right. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably for us been one of the biggest struggles is establishing those partnerships, just like we were talking about, you know, not having a hospital system and not having some of those providers on staff directly working with multiple pharmacies and multiple different hospitals and multiple different clinics provides a, a very unique set of challenges. Um, we do have some fantastic local and state and federal groups available to us that can provide those services to patients. But there's definitely an advantage to actually walking into a patient's home and opening up their kitchen cabinet or looking at their dining room table. You know, that's probably one of the biggest selling points for a community paramedicine program. And anyone who might be interested in investing in one is that, you know, we are mobile. You know, we go into the patient's home so we can tell you 
when this patient walks into your clinic, you may not know why their COPD continues to flare up because they never mentioned to you that they've got 10 cats in their house, right? So having that community paramedic be able to walk into their house and look at their medications and see that, you know, even though you've prescribed them a new diuretic, they didn't understand that they were supposed to stop taking their old diuretic as well. And it's definitely a selling point of any community paramedic or mobile integrated healthcare program is that mobility. You're, you're talking my language. That's, that's absolutely it. So I really want to thank you for hopping on here and talking about the stuff that you folks have been doing. It sounds like it's a great program and you know, you've really built it into something that's sustainable and reliable uh, for the community. So any other things you want to leave people with, any pieces of advice for folks that are, uh, especially at that transition point, you know, you've got something up and running, you've got a little bit of funding, it's, it's allowed you to get started, but now you're trying to figure out how to continue. And what would you tell someone who's in that, at that point, you know, we've got a year of experience behind us and we want to keep going. How do we tell or sell the value of what we do to someone else? Um, data. <laughs> You know, everything revolves around data. Um, so making sure that you are not going to the table with just the feel-good story, right? So, you know, we know that we're doing good things. The patient feels better and they are better. And the field staff know that they're not seeing that person once a week anymore. And it feels really good. But taking that to the table with a potential investor or a potential partner is not what speaks, unfortunately. You know, so some of the human factor of what we're doing and the gratification that we get from really helping these patients is not necessarily the first thing that you take to the table, right? That's kind of the icing on the cake. So taking the data to the table, um, you know, when you make a a one pager, one of the things that I learned was, you know, they just want to see the stats on the front. They want to see how successful you are. And so when I created those, those one pagers, you know, and showed our, our stats, they looked really good, but on the back, then I had the feel good story. So just making sure that you are actually doing things that are measurable, um, knowing that there are, many other community paramedic programs around the country that are struggling with the same things that you are struggling with. And then finding someone who can be a mentor um, to your program, because there's always somebody else who's been through what you are trying to navigate at the time. That's it. Reach out, build relationships. Yay. Yay. Well, again, Amy, thank you so much for hopping on here and just talking about the stuff you folks are doing. And for everybody else out there, you know, the Integrated Community Paramedicine Podcast is a chance for us all to talk about the programs. If you're interested in really just sharing what you're doing, the successes, the struggles, the questions, the, the great stories that come about from some of our more unique encounters, I want to hear from you. Easiest way to find me, Jonah at integrated-cp.com. Um, podcasts can be found in all the places you can usually find podcasts. So, hey, Amy Jarosek coming at us from Texas. Thank you so much today and have a good day. Thank you. 